afternoon. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is the show on BYU Radio that is all about shining a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. My name is Jeff Simpson. And my name is Cole Wissinger. And we are here each and every week to give you the very best in entertainment. And some of the ways we do that is by giving you the very best in news. And uh, But before we get to the good news of the week, we want to recognize... A somebody in the studio who could very well have the coronavirus, uh, <laughs> and that's why he Thanks. is behind five inches of of glass. And his name is Rod Gustafson. Rod, welcome back. <laughs> All right, just to set this straight, I have a sinus infection. Okay. There you go. That's all. And he went it's and saw Emma, healthy. so he's the groundwork <laughs> has been set, people. Um, so, yeah. Maybe. Emma with the sinus infection. I did this for you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get back to Emma here in just a minute. But, Cole, what are some of the good pieces of news that are that are in Hollywood right well, now? Well, as what ends up happening, we start off with the not-so-good news, or maybe, like, good from a different angle, and then we get better and better as we go. But because sure. you mentioned the coronavirus that is on the top of everyone's mind, there are media and entertainment implications here, one of which was last week we announced that the James Bond production was taking a short hiatus. Now it looks like that's going to be a little bit longer than we originally planned, as has this whole epidemic, it seems like. And the entire release date for James Bond 25, No Time to Die, has been pushed back to November due to complications in the filming process. That's a huge delay, but I've got to say I'm not too disappointed. You want to know why? Why? That's where it belongs. It's where it belongs. It does. Thanksgiving right along with all the James Bond marathons that you catch on TV. James Bond lives in November. Mm-hmm. And for everyone that was trying to catch up on the other 24 movies, now you have yeah, an extra couple months. You, you know, know. <laughs> I, I'm wondering with this coronavirus thing, if they won't take one of these big movies this year and put it on, you know, iTunes or Google Play for 40 bucks, you know, like $40 and you can watch the movie at home. Like will access it away from coughing mouths. Yeah, exactly. I, I wonder what would happen with that. They'll have to come up with something. Yeah. But isn't it interesting that the movie is called No Time to Die? So they have to <laughs> change the release date. Makes sense to me. Right. Yeah. Well, okay, speaking of staying home and watching things, here's something that's going to be coming out on Netflix. A couple of animated series from Taika Waititi, and get this, they both have to do with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yep, hmm. so the old doll book. You'll get Taika Waititi's take on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, as well as what looks to be some sort of an Oompa Loompa spinoff. Um, why not? Goofy and fun. That's what Why we expect not? from Taika Waititi, and that's what we certainly got from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Willy Wonka universe. Speaking of staying homesick, when I would stay homesick as a child, I could <gasps> rely on one particular program to carry me through. Had two, right? Price is Right was one. <laughs> okay. But the second was Judge Judy. Interesting, because I thought for a minute you were going to say – because my go-to sick movie when I stayed home was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, what has Judge Judy got to do with this conversation? Did I miss something? Judge Judy's hanging up the gavel in the cape. She Ooh. is retiring at the end of this season. Whoa. Judy. Judy, we need you now more than ever. Do you know I had some family members just a few short months ago whose name I won't reveal, and I crushed them when I told them that Judge Judy was not a real judge. Oh, <laughs> Rod. They were, I, mean, I totally ruined the whole show for them. It's entertaining and it's judge adjacent. Let's yeah. say, judge adjacent. let's just agree on this. Between she's, her, Judge Joe Brown. No, 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 no. She's more of a judge than Jen, Judge Reinhold will ever be. Can we judge agree on that? Hmm. <laughs> Something else you can catch today, starting today on TV, if you just happen to purchase an Apple product recently because i don't know too many people that are signing up for apple tv plus most people accidentally have it when they buy their new iphone but Mm -hmm. they have to sign up for the free trial within a certain amount of time or they they lose that window but i did and now we have two apple tv plus accounts in my household um and i i i subscribed to it with that year-long trial because i wanted to watch Amazing Stories, a reboot of an 80s TV classic that was created by Steven Spielberg. And now it's back with five 
new episodes in what hopes to be season one of of many seasons to come. And uh, I've started watching the first episode, and it'll be one of those one-episode-per-week type deals. The first episode deals with time travel and romance. So there you have it, right out of the gate. when Rod Gustafson comes by, because it means I'm not the only one that's not in Jeff's generation when he talks about the nostalgic <laughs> yes, of he's in the middle. youth. They kept the same theme song I from the 80s TV show. I've heard of American Story. Amazing, Amazing Story. Amazing Before stories. you started talking about it a couple weeks ago it's in Hype. It's an Emmy Award winning series from the 80s. I they do recall. Emmys, like candy. Whoa. Vaguely. Cole, I think Judge like Judy is also an Emmy Award winner. Winning judge. Cole uses Cole uses his Emmy Award as a doorstop. So that goes to show you the reverence he has for wow. that award. Right. Emmy's um, like candy. <laughs> what any other news, Cole, that we ought to be talking about before we get into these reviews? Because I've got one more. Okay. Frozen Two broke into the top ten highest grossing films of all time. Oh sure. That's with one point four four seven billion dollars. Just when everybody thought that people were experiencing frozen fatigue, they uh, they thought out um, – no, we'll get rid of that. Just when everybody thought that everybody – just when everybody thought that we were experiencing frozen fatigue, Disney once again proved us wrong. And uh, there's still a little bit of fire left in that block of ice. And uh, yeah, now it's in the top ten of all time. It didn't burn out, didn't flame out. Yeah, the excitement was, which is interesting because I had called it a big hot way. mess. That's what um, I, the first one. That's how I felt too. Yeah, just, yep. Don't but anyway, good for you, Disney, and good for all you little girls around the world. My daughter's kind of it's bragging rights for them that they've seen it three times now. Oh, we've seen it three times. You are a good father. <laughs> yeah, well, have I've, you seen it all three of those no. times? You, oh. I saw it one of those times. Oh, I thought you saw it three times. Okay, sorry. You were a mediocre father. <laughs> <laughs> so Disney Animation gets one you know, more trophy to hang up on their shelf. And we're going to be talking about animation within live action and CGI characters and things of that nature today on the program. But it is also in honor of another Pixar movie hitting theaters as of today. One of two coming out this year, I believe. There's only been one other time that Pixar has released two animated movies in the same year. Uh, The last time The Good Dinosaur was the other one that they kind of snuck out there. Not one of the most critically acclaimed of the Pixar canon, but the first one to hit in 2020 is Onward, starring the voice talents of Chris Pratt and Tom Holland of the Marvel Universe. Okay. Just down the hall there at Disney. So I understand you had a chance to see this movie. I watched it a little early, and it was... Pretty good. So this is, uh, and it's drawing a lot of comparisons to Frozen, because Frozen was kind of the pinnacle of sisterhood in youth movies, right? You have these two girls, and they find true love in the fact that they were sisters and that they should love each other the whole time. Uh, Onward is very much just the brother version of that, and I have to be honest, I didn't really connect with Frozen because I don't have sisters. I didn't connect with Onward because I don't have brothers either. I am an only child, and I think I missed out on a little bit of what the the drama and and the big cry at the end that they're trying to get to you because I don't have those brotherhood relationships to pull from my childhood. I think you've just unlocked why I have such a hard time relating to Frozen. Because I am likewise an only child. So, I'd never thought about that. I, I will be interested to see and hear what you have to think about Onward because it was a very conventional adventure movie up until the point where, you know, they have their big catharsis as brothers. Uh, have either of you played – are either of you video gamers um, over on that side? I, so getting with the times, I decided I, need, I needed to buy – a video game and play it. So okay. I got on to What's eBay. What's the one you chose? Uh, and bought <laughs> Toy Story on Super <laughs> Nintendo. Super All right. So good Pixar connection. I like that. Yeah, Super <laughs> NES. Okay. There's one of the most popular video games of all time is a game called Ocarina of Time. It's it's a Legend of Zelda, Zelda. video game for the N64, and it's it's one of the most critically acclaimed video games as well. And the reason I bring it up here is because the plot of that video game was you go into a temple, you get a very specific item to put into your little item box, and then at some point in the temple, that exact item has exact relevance to the big boss that you have to beat, right? 
if you get a bow and arrow during the course of the the temple, then inevitably there will be a boss with one giant glowing eye that you have to hit with the bow and arrow in order to progress. Some would call this, you know, good storytelling and good video game mechanics where they set you up with something and then they pay it off immediately. It's also very, very formulaic and it gets to the point where, oh, you get the new thing and then you use it exactly the way you need to. Onward, works exactly like this. There are three specific, like, new spells that the brothers have to kind of learn and teach each other and and accomplish, and then they teach them also something about themselves in just the most hold-your-hand-by-the-book kind of way I have ever seen Pixar give to us. Pixar is mm, known for their so very imaginative and, yeah. and fantastical storytelling, and this is entering into a magical world that should be rich with all of that, and they just... Set you up with a thing, they teach you a little lesson, and then they pay it off. And then mm. at the very end, inevitably, the the big boss, you have to put all of the things that you've learned together and use them all at once, and, and then you get the big payoff. Uh, Storytelling-wise, it was the most boring movie I have seen <gasps> in years. Oh, gosh. No. Visually, it was pretty. The interaction with Chris Pratt and Tom Holland is fun. And again, if you have a brother, you will probably enjoy seeing them kind of grow apart and come together. And, and they did a good job having chemistry. But the the story was very lacking to me. The good news is this probably means that I'm going to love this film if Cole disliked it this much. Wow. Well, that's that's, great that's what news. we can normally tell from. Oh, you got me curious. Okay, yeah. there you have it, listeners. Cole didn't like it, so you, you and I are very likely to like it. And it was okay, yeah. and it was funny, and it's Pixar, so there, there's there's a a floor as far as quality can't go too much lower than. But oh. it, it was about as bad as I've seen from Pixar. Whoa. Okay, so if that PG movie isn't your cup of tea. <laughs> then let's talk about another PG movie that is finally out on a more uh, widespread release. Um, let's talk about the other movie where there are probably scenes of them actually drinking tea. Absolutely. Right, there are a lot of teacups. <laughs> there are. And I am assuming we're talking Emma. Yes. Good. Let's talk Emma. Okay. Well, first of all, I'd like to admit my bias. I am not a Jane Austen fan, but my wife is, so I took her with me. And uh, so that she could explain to me, because every time I've watched a Jane Austen movie, usually at some point I have to say, who's that guy again? Was that he, is that his his son? <laughs> is in that type of thing. So, And Emma is very much like this. This is a movie really about a... Um, I, I, it's a movie about a rich girl who is sitting around in Victorian times or Elizabethan. Gosh, I don't even know if I've got the right... I, have I, who knows if I've got the right time You're Canadian. You're here. supposed to know the Queen's... I should know this. Yes. And it's... She sits around trying to matchmake other people in her little community. And that's basically where she gets all of her. uh, That's the excitement of her life. But of course, there is going to be a man that's going to show up that really wants to fall in love with her. And then she's going to have to determine whether that's going to work for her or not. And that is really one of the critical problems with this movie and other Jane Austen movies for me, like this particular character of Emma. I don't really like her that much, and I have no idea why the guy that does show up really wants to do anything he can to try and win her hand in marriage. But Mm. anyhow, so um, what's good about this movie? Let's talk about that first. Her father is played by Bill Nighy. The main reason I would go to see this movie. Yes, absolutely. And that is the main reason that I stayed relatively engaged for the two-hour runtime. Bill is just amazing playing her father. And what's funny about Bill is I think he may represent a few people in the audience who maybe I don't want to be sexist, but more likely men than women who who came to this movie because he has this bored look on his face and he makes these little sarcastic quips during the movie <laughs> and just does such a great job. I of love it, that so. kind of an audience stand in. <laughs> exactly. So that part of it, that part of it really was probably for me the most engaging part. He is the comic relief, even though this is a comedy and I think there there is some comedy i admit i did laugh sometimes what really kept me going uh, aside from bill was it really is an astounding movie to look at the um costumes and props and what i really noticed about the props in this one is that they really 
went to an extra effort to make sure that they were aged and they looked like they were worn and used. And maybe it's because the theater was so full. I was in the front row and so I could see everything in incredible detail. Yeah. But uh, it really, it's an amazing movie to look at. There are many scenes where you just go, wow. And the cinematography as well, something that's really cool is many of these scenes have two characters that are just kind of playing off of one another who really can't communicate to each other whether they like each other or not. But the cinematographer really chose some interesting ways to display that and just has many of these just full full-on shots that are very symmetrical and that type of thing. So if you're a bit of a cinematography nerd, you may enjoy it as well. So so anyhow, it's rated PG, as Jeff mentioned. There is a a couple of little brief moments of nudity right at the very beginning for no good reason. A guy getting dressed and a woman who decides she needs to warm herself a little more efficiently in front of a fire for a very brief (laughs) moment. Um, Other than that, and watching that, I thought, okay, this is PG. I wonder how much more there is in here. And maybe that's why they did that is... Because people would think, oh, this is going to be a very different Emma. But no, really, once it gets into it, it just does the usual Jane Austen thing. It's Austen. Well, I think overall this is a great weekend at the movies because when was the last time you can remember two PG movies coming out that you had to choose from? Not big releases. Very true. fantastic. Yeah. 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 No, that's really true. I should say to parents, if you see Emma with your kids, here I go. This is what I always do. It's just, it's a cool thing to talk about some of the things that Emma did that weren't very good, but then how she tried to correct them and that type of thing. So there's some good moral lessons in there, too. Mm. You know what I bet was missing from Emma? A big CGI explosion. <laughs> yes! <laughs> and so when we come back with an, on screen cleaning today, we're going to talk a little bit of CGI with an animator himself that has been uh, in charge of those computer graphics in movies such as the Guardians of the Galaxy and Spider-Man franchises. Speaking of Chris Pratt and uh, Tom, Tom Holland. Holland. Exactly, mm. from Onward. That's all coming up next here on Screen Cleaning. In times of old, the world was full of wonder and magic. But times change. I'm a mighty warrior! Morning, Mom! Hey, birthday boy! By the laws of yore, I must dub thee a man today. Kneel before me. That's okay. I have a gift from your dad. And I was was like, how is he doing that? He is so good. He looks so tortured and so unwell and so, and so like, like hurt. And then he basically just had a stomach bug. <laughs> and, and they actually CGI'd the vomit out of the shot. But if you look in the movie, in the movie at this, my mouth is just partially open at one. I'm kidding. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go back to see it. was right there. Yeah. I mean, that's the Marvel Universe. Just painting out the vomit. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. My name is Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And once again, part of screen cleaning is to give you the very best in entertainment. And one way that we do that is we like to talk about some of the parts of the industry that that uh, people don't necessarily think about a lot. I Hopefully people are thinking about animation a lot, especially with the release of this recent Harrison Ford movie, The Call of the Wild, and that's really what sparked this whole idea of talking about animation today. And sometimes we like to talk about it with people that know uh, maybe a little bit more than Jeff and I. Right, because Cole and I can go to a movie, we can look at a CGI dog and say, you know, that dog is animated, that is not a real dog. But there's so much more that goes into... CGI and animation on the screen. And we love animation here on Screen Cleaning, and so we like to give it its due. And so hopefully that's something that we can do today with uh, BYU animation professor Nathan Lindsay, who's with us on the show. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. Well, thank you very much. Nathan, to start off, we want to know how you came to be the successful computer animator that you are today. Take us back to you as a kid. What's the kind of animation that you grew up with that that sparked your interest for this way of telling stories? Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes, Absolutely. And I still watch them. I love them. I've raised my kids on them. Uh, to me, that is, that's one of the pinnacles of animation. So you're probably super excited for the upcoming release of the next Space Jam movie then. If they don't wreck it. <laughs> um, 
It'll it'll be interesting. And I I actually had a little bit of struggle with the original Space Jam mm. because um, for me I'm a little bit more of a purist with the Looney Tunes, and so with the redesigns and and creating more of a hip culture sure. look to them um, makes me step back just a little bit. So. I don't know. I'm I'm willing to give it a shot, though. Favorite Looney Tunes character? Daffy Duck. Daffy Duck. All right. So you grow up and you become a professional in the industry. What are some of the projects that you've worked on? Go ahead and give yourself some clout before we dive into, like, what we're actually doing. <laughs> so when I was actually a student at BYU is where I started learning animation. I was the first group that came through and created a short film here uh, as far as how the program was set up. Uh, We worked on Lemmings and uh, won some awards with that and created some good opportunities for us. Uh, My first job out of school, I actually went and worked for a video game company in Salt Lake City. And a year after I started working there, we got bought by Disney Interactive. Oh, wow. And um, with that, we made all of the video games for Disney and Pixar movies, the the tie-in games. Then I made a transition down to Los Angeles, and I uh, started working on commercials and television and movies where I got to do some pretty cool stuff, including uh, working on Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and Spider-Man Homecoming. I think I've heard of those movies. Just little indie films. <laughs> <laughs> they find their niche. Yeah. So, so what is it that you do when you are brought on? Because uh, you didn't write the script for Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I think that was James Gunn, right? Talented fella. But they do <laughs> need guys to animate stuff. What is What was it that you did for those kind of projects? My, my full-time job is animation. And specifically, I bring characters to life. I'm, okay. I make them move. So what does what does that mean, you make a move? Because there's so many more. It's not just one guy that draws everything, right? Well, Your yeah, there, specialty is There's the... a guy that, that shades everything. There's the guy that puts it all on the computer. And it's interesting. I, I love it when a new Pixar movie comes out. And I don't feel like they've been doing this as much anymore. But it used to be that they would take maybe three or four minutes, I think, of Coco, right? Um, Incredibles 2. Before the movie comes out. And they, they basically what they're saying is, no, seriously, you guys, this took us a really long time. And this was really hard to do. And here's just a three-minute snapshot of everything that goes into it. So, yeah, I, I think just what part of that process exactly is it that that you that you oversee? So for me, in in creating the animation, I make the characters come to life, and there's a lot that goes into that to allow me to do my job. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we talked about the story and who who creates that. We've got pre production as far as as animation and specifically in VFX stuff. You have pre production where they're developing the the scripts and the ideas. They're getting the budgets and timelines. All of that stuff sure. is getting figured out. Then you have production. And in th- where it's different is in VFX animation, they are shooting live-action actors mm. either on location or on a set. And it could have props and it could just have green screen and, and much more of VFX is getting into green screen. I think of Rango when you talk about that. Well, yes. And interesting, Rango – Rango is is fully animated, mm-hmm. um, but in how they are figuring this stuff out, they're putting together uh, very much like a live action movie. They're having to figure out what's going to be created because all of it's invented. Nothing sure. is real yeah, yeah. in there. And then when you have VFX or visual effects mm. is when you have your live action actors that act things out and none of the animation is there. So m- much of the background may not even exist at all and they're going to add to that. So with that, they they take those film plates and they record them. And then in post-production, where in a live-action movie, that's when they're doing all the cleanup and color correction and adjusting things so that it all looks good. In VFX, you have post-production, which is actually where the animation starts. Mm -hmm. is because we're taking these video plates – and bringing them into Maya on on our computers and having them as a background, and then we are setting up our animated characters within the scene with the live action. So it's really cool because in those plates, the live action actors 
are talking to a stick with a ball on the top. Sure. And that'll be the sight line that they're looking at. And so that becomes Rocket Raccoon. That's the height that he's going to be. And yeah. so when we bring that in, we will set up our 3D model character to line up with that stick so that when Quill is talking to him, their yeah. eyes are looking at each other. And so with that, what we have to understand is it has uh, – visual effects have been – become so integrated into what we see now that we actually don't notice. And that's what's crazy about this is when we are looking at anything, television commercials, TV shows, and some of the television shows don't have the time or the budget to add CG stuff to it. But anything that has a production schedule that's long enough for them to create things, uh, they are completely using CG all over the place and you don't even know it. So does that mean you get fooled sometimes by, like, have you ever been surprised when someone says, yeah, that was CG afterwards, and it's, con- it's fooled even the, the industry veteran? Absolutely. That's and, good news. And the thing is, we've gotta, we have to pay attention, uh, because if we aren't questioning everything that we're seeing, then it will completely fool us. Huh. Um, there, there's a lot of times on movies that... Everything but the live people that you know are humans, which, by the way, sometimes they aren't. Oh, interesting. <laughs> they, they do a lot of, of doubling out. And so, for example, you'll see movies like uh, – well, most of the Marvel movies actually are doing this where you will, you will have a scene that's impossible for a human to do. They will use a digital double. They will recreate in CG that character's full body. Yeah, And then they will either have a CG face on him, but sometimes they'll actually put the real actor's face onto the CG character. Wow. If and that, the, that's to avoid that uncanny valley, right? Because right. as good as we are at CG, we're still getting there with human faces. Yes. And there's, there's a ton of technology that's going into this now where we're starting to even be fooled by how things look. Um, but the human face, we stare at it all the time, and everybody is really clued in on what it's supposed to do and, and look like. Sure. But from a distance, you, oh, you can fake everything. Yeah. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with animation professor Nathan Lindsay, who is a professor here at uh, Brigham Young University. And Nathan, let's talk about a couple of recent examples of CGI at the movies, a couple of movies that are actually – that you can watch right now. Um, Cole and I were fascinated. We were following very closely this story behind Sonic the Hedgehog where this trailer comes out and there's this huge public outcry about the look of Sonic and he looks totally different from the video game and, and maybe a little creepy, right? Yeah, he, he looked in one way in the first trailer and then by the time the movie comes out, a little bit later than it was maybe supposed to come out originally. He looks entirely different. F- knowing some of the background to the industry, what would you say happened in that meantime, right? They decide to entirely redesign the character. What was going on for the animators in their cubicles? Hmm. Who knows the truth? <laughs> I don't. But could this have been genius marketing? <laughs> Jeff Cole, is so happy. <laughs> I am so I'm so happy you're saying this, Nathan, because this was one of my theories that Cole didn't buy into. So I'd I, love to hear your perspective on this. Because I wear a tinfoil hat every single day <laughs> to deflect out the conspiracies. Yeah, and I'm not huge into conspiracies, <laughs> but I thought, what if maybe the this was my perspective? Maybe you have a different marketing perspective on it, but my idea was, what if maybe the movie wasn't totally ready to be released anyway. And so they used this public outcry as an opportunity to go back and work out some of the kinks that they knew still existed and then just said, aren't we so great? We listened to the, you, you had your voices heard and, uh, and we listened. That was my, that was my theory anyway. Let's hear what you have to say about it though. That is possible. Okay. I, I have, yes. I have no idea, and I've <laughs> I have searched the internet when this went down. Yeah. My my initial reaction, obviously, like the rest of the sane world, was that is awful. <laughs> it was a horrible design. It it wasn't even if we didn't know who Sonic the Hedgehog was, 
just looking at that original design didn't make any sense professionally, why something would be designed that way. Sure. Now, that's not to say that there are people in charge with a lot of money making choices that everyone disagrees with. Yeah. But they are in charge and they have a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> so sometimes those things do happen. But this was one that was really confusing to me because there's such an incredible fan base for that character. Right. I can't see that it wasn't intentional to uh, throw off the the audience, p- perhaps give them more time, or perhaps to to buy some credibility and relationships with their audience of of as you mentioned, listening to them and making people feel more engaged in the process. Yeah. Cole Cole would like to discredit that based on a line from the movie because this was originally supposed to come out uh, toward the end of 2019, right? And we don't want to say at what point uh, in the movie or in what context. Have you seen the movie? I have not. Okay. Uh, there's a line in there where a character says, with any luck, I'll be home by Christmas. So Cole takes that as, oh, get it? Because Christmas is just around yeah, the corner. Originally, it was supposed to come out right before Christmas. And yeah. so that line made sense. If they were going to reshoot and re-script or do anything like that, wouldn't they have fixed that? Anyway, but like the final product, you've kind of seen now what it looks like. From a technical perspective, can you see like even in the trailer where, oh, they used to have this design and now they have this? Was it was it just like cut and paste? Like what what happened? Did they have to go in and individually draw all those hairs again? What, what were the animators doing? Well, to give you a little bit of understanding of how CG animation works different from 2D or traditional hand-drawn animation is once we have everything – in the computer, they design the model and that character, and it's very much like a sculpture that you've created on the computer. And what that allows us to do is rotate that around from any angle, and it's always going to be the same. Then we apply textures or fur to that, depending on what the character's needs are. They'll add clothing to that. They can simulate that clothing so it looks like physics is being applied to it. Sure. So the difference... Between that and old school is in old school, if they had designed Sonic horribly, then they would have to just redraw everything. Which would take a while. Oh, (laughs) all of this takes a while. (laughs) But even in CG, they would have to replace everything with that. You can't just change out his face on that. You would have to not just change the design of the character, but we have something towards the end of the process called rendering, where you have everything set up, you have all your tools dialed in, and you have the fur that doesn't look like fur. It just looks like weird little spaghetti noodles and stuff on there, and that represents the fur. And then once that gets rendered or baked out, then it becomes the fur that we we appreciate in the final film and it gets the light and the wind on that. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's a total rework and I don't know how much uh, footage was actually released. Was any footage released of the poor design animated or were they just just still images? Just Just in the trailer. trailer. Okay. Yeah. So interesting. And the thing, so the thing I come back to after having seen Sonic it is a movie that is geared towards kids. And mm-hmm. so the final, smoother, more friendly design seems to fit more with the theme of the movie than the more realistic, maybe uh, creepy version of Sonic <laughs> totally that creepy. they originally put out there. And so we want to ask you how CGI can kind of contribute to the storytelling, right? Because you look at Call of the Wild again, if this movie was made back in the 90s, there just would have been a dog and it would have been fine. So. What does CGI bring to the table maybe? What are some advantages and, and disadvantages in general? It's it's a great question because it's a question that always gets asked, especially in animation, is mm-hmm. why should it be animated? Because if we can do it in real life, then why should we animate it? Yeah. Because it takes longer and it's more expensive to animate something. Yeah. And so – with that, we're always pushing the boundaries. And and that's why a lot of times bad things get made because we've just got to try. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And again, sometimes people with a lot of money and power, <laughs> they they ask their grandson what he wants and they make that movie. And it's like, what the? <laughs> so with that, we're always pushing the boundaries to figure out what can we do. And until you try something, you can't 
you can't discover what your boundaries and limitations are. Yeah. And we, at some point, we have to be the pioneers of the new thing. So speaking of Call of the Wild, some of the backlash from that has been the dog is in that uncanny valley of is it a cartoon or is it real? And there's enough of that in between where it becomes a little confusing and it takes us out of the story Sure, a little bit. The reason why we would animate something, and this movie's probably a pretty good reason for that, is you are putting either humans or animals in peril. Yeah, exactly. And we can fake that, right? And yeah. so if it's done well, then we can appreciate, oh, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. So just as we wrap up here, you've, you've got a lot of experience in this field. What would you say are some of your favorite CGI characters or maybe even instances of CGI in film? So I think about the movies that I love. And I love animation. I love watching animation. And it's interesting because I, I don't re-watch movies often um, because I have – I visually remember them sure. so much. And I yeah. don't have a great memory actually. But there's something about movies and animation that, that I remember them really well, almost yeah. as if I just watched them even if it was years ago. Yeah, yeah. And so um, it's – it's fascinating, though, that there are times when things really resonate with me or I latch on to that. You know, it's like a, a good friend or a delicious food. Once I love something, I'm all in. Like, right. I can do that over yeah, and over again. Yeah. And so when I think about CG characters that have meant something to me in my life, uh, I, I certainly have to go back to the original Toy Story. This is where yeah. This is where it became possible for animation to become computer generated and to hold an audience for a feature length film. This yeah. was this is historical and that set in motion everything that we get to enjoy now and it's, it's pretty awesome. I I think about some of my favorite animation movies. Um, Pixar has several of them. I think about The Incredibles. I've watched most of The Incredibles frame by frame. Just oh, wow. just being able to study that and appreciate the work that went into that. And you mentioned Coco, fantastic movie, but just beautiful yeah. in the way that they are portraying these characters in this storyline, and it, it becomes very real to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kung Fu Panda. I, I You're can, speaking Cole's language right now. I, I here's what's crazy. I cannot look or listen to Jack Black anymore and think he's a real human. He has become <laughs> Poe the panda yeah. to me. Yeah. Absolutely. There's no question. I'm like, oh, Poe is being Jack Black today. <laughs> so I love it when, when an animation can pull me in in that way, that yeah. it becomes reality to me in you know, a weird cartoony kind of way. I love I love all the forms of animation. I love stop motion. Wallace and Gromit are a big part of oh, my life. You're speaking my language now. I love this. <laughs> and so being able to to uh have these characters come to life in all the different forms is so magical to me and I love being able to immerse myself into this world and then we step over into live action where they're using visual effects and CG stuff and certainly I I got to work on Guardians of the Galaxy 2 what a what a great experience that was yeah. but to see the magic behind the scenes of that was incredible to me to see how and I explained it just a little bit, but to be in the studio and to see, oh, the, the actors, I never, that's the biggest question people are, did you get to meet the actors? I'm like, no, <laughs> they don't want to meet me. But to, to see the raw footage and then how we place the, the 3D stuff on top of that and how it becomes integrated and seamless and you don't see how that, that what's real and what's not. It's, sure. It is magical, and I love being a part of it. Chris Pratt doesn't become Star-Lord until he can fly around and have that CGI helmet pop down. Absolutely. That's that's what you make superheroes in you know, your job. It's great. It's so funny because as you were talking about, basically the process of, of animating these films with, with real people, um, I couldn't help but think of little kids at play and using their imagination and it's pretend time, right? And how totally normal that seems and how adorable and sweet that uh, if you were to walk in on your kids doing something like that would be totally just heartwarming, right? But imagine walking in on a bunch of adults doing that and like with a straight face and 
it seems like it would <laughs> take on a, a totally different meaning and might seem a little ridiculous taken out of context and seen without some of those effects layered on, right? You have just described where I work. <laughs> a bunch of adults playing with toys. Yeah. And that that's the awesome magic about this industry is it's hard work. It's really, really time-consuming. But the fact that we get to play with cartoons, we get to use our imaginations and make this stuff come to life yeah. is an absolute dream come true. Well, Nathan, we've super appreciated you coming into our show today and, and being a part of this program because, yeah, you've got a lot of experience. And if nothing else, I feel validated that my marketing conspiracy behind Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> was correct. Uh, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. His name is Nathan Lindsay, and he is a professor here at BYU in BYU's award-winning animation department. They've won all sorts of awards. They've had mentoring from Pixar. They're kind of a big deal, right, Cole? They are, and Pixar even has that new movie out this weekend, so we thought what better time to bring in someone that knows this animation industry. When we come back here on Screen Cleaning, Jeff and I will be sharing some of our favorite examples of CGI in live-action movies. That's up next. Don't go anywhere. There's a port on a western bay And it serves a hundred ships a day Everybody get up, it's time to slam now We got the real jam going down Welcome to the Space Jam Here's your chance, do your dance at the Space Jam Jeffrey, when I think of animation in live action movies The conversation begins and ends with the Space Jam Well then it sounds like we don't have to talk about anything else If the conversation begins and ends with that And that was Jeffrey and I's conversation About live action <laughs> movies with animation in them Welcome to Screen Click <laughs> Well you probably I'm sorry if I was a little distracted there I was just jamming out to, to the, the Space, Space Jam, Jam. Oh, wow. such a good song. And we thank once again Nathan Lindsay for coming on and giving a little bit more of a sophisticated look and a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into some of the motion and characters that have graced the live-action screen that sometimes you don't even realize were composite. They were CGI. So now Cole and I wanted to have a conversation about some of our favorite uses of CGI in film. And, uh, Cole, there are so many examples and so many films that – we're pioneers in this field of, of computer-generated images. And, you know, I, maybe we should start with one that is one of the earlier earlier uses of CGI that was a favorite of mine. Okay. And it's it represents this theme that we see popping up a lot now in movies and even in concerts, right? This idea of what if we could... What if we could make it look like somebody who has passed on uh, is in this movie or is in this concert that we're paying all this money to go see, right? And it's kind of a hot-button topic, especially when you talk about concerts. But I think of the movie Forrest Gump. And how cool was it to see Tom Hanks up there on the screen with John F. Kennedy and LBJ and Richard Nixon and it was really cool how they did that and really kind of kind of a big deal when it came out, right, Cole? It kind of reminded me of like a rudimentary Photoshop where, oh, there's this picture and what's Tom Hanks doing and right standing right next to these famous people? But then it was also like moving. It was a moving picture. Well, and then they had are. to they – they made use of voiceover and animating the, the mouths of the presidents because they had to make it look like they were saying what they needed them to say, right? Right, right. And uh, yeah, so that's that's something that really hasn't gone away. You see it in commercials and some people love it. Some people really don't love James it. James Dean, I think we had news a few months ago, is going to be starring in a new movie, even though he's been passed away for quite a few years. And of course, in the Disney world, the Star Wars and the Marvel movies have both taken advantage of either de-aging their current old stars to make them look younger. I would think Hank Pym is the prime example when they took... That is a good use of C- CGI. Holy that, cow. That one was a good one. Some others have been less than effective for sure. me. Sure. Well, yeah, think of uh, Captain Marvel. You can make Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> look younger, 
But when he you starts can't make running, him run younger. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jurassic Park, when that movie came out. Speaking of Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Was so cool and it seemed revolutionary. I mean, when you watch it today, it seems a little dated. But what I appreciate, actually, is that even with all the CGI in that movie, there is a, a pretty big amount of practical effects, something that you no longer really see in the Jurassic Park movies, unfortunately. I'm I'm a fan of, of using both. Um, you know, use the CGI when you need to, but uh, if your story can be served well with practical effects, do it that way. But there are plenty of examples where maybe that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. I think of a movie like Inception. Yeah, I I want to see these cities like folding in onto each other. <laughs> and since then, we've seen movies that try to copy that. When I couldn't watch Doctor Strange yeah. without thinking of Inception and thinking, oh, this is just kind of a ripoff of Inception. Yeah. And uh, but I mean, there's that. But then great scripts can really aid some really good CGI as well. And that's certainly the case with Inception. Inception and Jurassic Park, I think, both used enough practical stuff that when the CGI came, it doesn't take you out of the movie because, oh, if they realistically did Joseph Gordon-Levitt tumbling around in a rotating hallway, then what else did they realistically do? And it starts to blur the line and fool you as a moviegoer so that you're not just immediately thinking, oh, this was probably just CGI. Like, I mean, the first time I watched Mission Impossible 4, I just assumed Tom Cruise was running up and down a green building as you know not actually on nope but no he was actually doing that and so sometimes our abilities in cgi do a disservice to the practical effects that are out there which is a shame yeah and you know a lot of times they start with practical effects and then they just do a little bit of layering you know just a little bit icing on the cake with some some of that cgi um the matrix was super revolutionary when that came out there are a couple of movies that I want to talk about that the year that they came out, nominated for all of the technical categories, won all the technical categories. You know, you think of movies like The Matrix and Mad Max, Fury Road, mm-hmm. and probably my favorite action movie of all time, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Yeah, the T-1000 turns into CGI so whenever you like melts or whenever the bullets kind of go into them and it, and it makes it look like you're hitting basically bulletproof armor and then they heal themselves. Yeah, but I mean Matrix and Terminator 2 might seem a little date, dated by today's standards, but the reason we keep going back to these movies, Cole, and the reason that they that we can keep watching them and enjoying them and appreciating them is because they have great stories and great characters that you really care about and are invested in. And, uh, you know, sometimes CGI can just really support that, and other times filmmakers just lean way too heavily on it. Can I talk about a movie that has a terrible script and terrible CGI character? Sure. But it was the very first, and I know I've mentioned it on the show before, but... In the early, in the late '90s, early 2000s, around Matrix time, um, we were seeing our very first, com- like entirely computer-generated characters in a live-action movie. Gollum gets a lot of credit because he looked good and he was in a good movie, Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. But Jar Jar Binks in 1999 oh, holds the honor of being the first fully computer-generated character to interact Is with. Is that true? Yes, wow. like as like a computer-generated life-like character. Now, not a cartoon, right? We had Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Space Jam, of course, right. and and Looney Tunes back in action, which I don't think gets enough credit. I enjoy it just as much as I do Space Jam. As huh. As far as Looney Tunes being around real people, okay, specifically, slightly better <laughs> actor than Michael Jordan, but I guess not by much. But that's a different conversation. Um, but yeah, Jar Jar Binks, even though he was a terribly written character in a terribly written movie, was the first to do it. And when you go back and watch some of those movies, even after all the 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 polish and sheen that George Lucas likes to put on him every five years, it seems like. Um, when Liam Neeson is like tackling Jar Jar to get him out of the way to save his life, that kind of prompts the rest of the movie to go forward. It looks really, really bad. It's like he's tackling a, a 
a crash test dummy that they just kind of put Jar Jar skin on. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always hold up very well, but he is the first, and I think that deserves mentioning. You know, one of the films that blew me away the first time I saw it, and really I think it's the only time I saw it, I saw it in 3D in the theaters, and uh, it was one that I remember feeling like my jaw was on the floor because this filmmaker was just creating this entire world. Usually there's something there that they that they animate around, right? But it was like this was all computer-generated. And um, there's a great story that goes with it. I've told it on the program before where, you know, it used – we were under the impression at this particular mall that if you purchased a food item at the mall – that uh, you were free to take it into the movie. I remember that half of the story. I don't remember what movie you were going okay, to see. Okay, we'll though. get there. So I go in and sit down to save seats. For some reason, I made my wife go get the DQ Blizzards, which are delicious, and I wish were a sponsor of the show. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. Finally, she comes back with the two Blizzards, and I, of course, had the Butterfinger Blizzard, because what else are you going to get? The Oreo cookie one. That is another. That is a solid second option, Cole. Those are my two favorite uh, ice cream toppings. I'd like to think so. And she comes back, hands me my blizzard. She kind of is rolling her eyes and shaking her head. I'm like, what? What happened? And she said, well, I was walking back into the movie theater and this ticket taker, you know, every time she tells the story, the ticket taker gets younger and younger. So I think currently, this punk fourteen-year-old. Well, kid. I think currently he's thirteen. Um, this third, you know, this thirteen-year-old kid tried to stop me and say, "Oh, you can't go in there with it." And she just said, "Well, my husband's in there waiting for me, so I'm just going to take this to him." And she walked right past him, and uh, yeah, that blizzard tasted pretty good. And what CGI movie were you seeing? Oh, right. The movie. <laughs> we watched Avatar. James oh, sure. Cameron's Avatar, somebody that we've already talked about in this discussion. Somebody who knows how to use CGI to great effect, has been nominated so many times for awards and won so many awards. Think of Titanic, Terminator 2, Avatar, and, you know, there's there are going to be several more Four Avatars. More Avatars on the way. Right. Um, and yeah, just these I remember being especially impressed with these floating uh I don't even know what you would call them but like these floating islands, right? And just the how he could create these worlds with just starting from scratch basically. Very impressive. I haven't revisited this film to see if the effects still hold up. But, uh, yeah, I was sure blown away when I saw it the first time. I have, and I think they do, because I've seen other grand or were supposed to be grand sci-fi movies since then, like Jupiter Ascending or Valyrian and the City of the Thousand Planets, where they they were trying to go into that sci-fi world in a post-James Cameron time in movie making, and they were still less effective and less convincing than James Cameron was in 2009. You hope that because he's taken this much time to put out Avatar 2, that it will be worth the wait. Yeah. Because it took, I mean, you, you hear the stories of him even making this film. He wanted to do it. He had the story ready back in the 80s or the 90s, but he was just waiting for CGI to catch mm. up to his vision. And I think it did. I think it worked out yeah. when we got it. You mentioned Peter Jackson already, you know, the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit movies, King Kong, somebody else. Lord of the Rings being a good use of CGI, yes. Hobbit being very, very bad use of CGI. Yes, another filmmaker who has made use of CGI to great effect and won lots of awards. One of my favorite ones that I want to that I want to finish here with um, is a film that you and I both love, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. And this is a use of CGI that doesn't really bring attention to itself. You get so enveloped in the story, in the characters, that you almost don't even see it as CGI. And part of it has to do with how the human characters that are not computer-generated interact with this computer-generated character, right? And I'm speaking, of course, of... Paddington Absolutely. Yeah. They don't treat him like this cartoon. They don't treat him 
like he's a bear even. They interact with him as if he's just another human, right? So they don't talk down to him. The story is amazing. The characters are so lovable, especially Hugh Grant as the villainous Phoenix Buchanan who uh, disgraces the noble profession of acting yes, um, by stealing this beautiful pop-up book in one of my favorite sequences of that movie where he's imagining what it would be like to be reunited with his his aunt again, and this this uh, CGI pop-up book opens, and you get to see the two of them strolling through London in this beautifully animated pop-up book. Very beautiful scene. But again, one of the better examples of CGI that d- it aids the story does not bring attention to itself because it's a solid script, amazing, and uh, characters that you care about. And it's just it's played very subtly, right, Cole? Yeah, I've I've been I've gone to see at least plenty of children's properties that were brought to the big screen in a new way because you take a CGI this and put it with live action. I think of Bill Murray's Garfield and the Smurfs <laughs> movies, and I went to see all of those. But Paddington really manages to be a convincing CGI character that never makes you think, oh. This is just a cartoon. Even Sonic, to some extent, because it was geared, I think, more towards juvenile humors and and intentions, uh, takes you out of it just a little bit, where Paddington did not. I I really appreciate it when filmmakers decide that they're not going to talk down to children. Because kids get it. Kids, in many ways, are smarter than adults. And, yeah, I, I love it when kids' movies actually are appealing to everybody involved and when it gives you an opportunity to talk with your kids as well. And Paddington 2 certainly does that. Well, that's going to do it for our discussion of CGI. But when we return, Cole, I believe you've got a couple more uh, examples of some of your favorite uses of CGI when we come back to do a little panning for good. So we'll do that up next here on Screen Cleaning. Let's have a drink and shelter from the showers. There's good in them dire hills. We've been talking about CGI characters in live action films today, all across the episode of Screen Cleaning, uh, from the animated and 2D drawn to the very lifelike little teddy bears in Paddington 2. But there's one other kind of animation that was very much a pioneer in putting any kind of animation into a live action film and that is stop motion and I want to give credit to some of the very early early days of where stop motion was and a man that has inspired so many other filmmakers and that is Ray Harryhausen who was in charge of the animation the claymation sculpting in movies like Jason and the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans hmm I remember th- I remember watching those in school in what they have to do with school I you know I don't think it matters right. Oh, okay, cool. So teachers have yeah movie days, right? Sure. I remember watching them with my dad, and especially a scene that jumps out to me from Jason and the Argonauts from the 1960s was all of these little claymation skeletons fighting each other and doing what at the time you couldn't do otherwise. And to bring, I mean, even going way back to King Kong in the 1930s, right? The film that inspired Harryhausen to put something on the screen that otherwise you just could not do. That's why we have all sorts of animation in live action movies. And that continues on today with CGI. Yeah, man. And again, there's some of these movies that we talked about this earlier, Cole, that you can forgive the fact that some of the effects are very outdated because either the script is so good or the characters are so good or sometimes you just discover these movies at the right time in your life so that when you come back to them, there's a little bit of nostalgia and that makes up for some of the shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And and when I think of Clash of the Titans and, and these these grand movies, we've even had a Clash of the Titans remake right after Avatar in 2009. In 2010, there was another Clash of the Titans and me and my dad went and saw it. And 
they had better graphics certainly than the goofy little, you know, stop motion figures, but it wasn't quite as convincing of a movie as a whole. And so it's it's not just the quality of the graphics that make your movie. It's everything else that goes to support them. And I think we're seeing that with some of these franchises that they keep revisiting, right, Cole? Anyway, we've certainly enjoyed speaking about computer-generated images today here on Screen Cleaning, CGI, and we were especially grateful to speak with Nathan Lindsay, a visiting professor at Brigham Young University in a very prestigious uh, animation department that has has been mentored by Pixar and has won all sorts of Emmys and other awards. So he certainly has a lot of street credit. And he also worked on a couple of the Marvel movies. I mean, come on, right, Cole? That's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And we are here each and every week to give you the very best in entertainment. We do that Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, here on Screen Cleaning on BYU Radio.